0: Hello again, Fight Fans, and welcome to episode number 117 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Real quick, I want to remind you guys to go to the iTunes Apple Podcast and find The Neutral Corner, find Montero Unboxing, drop a rating, a review, show us some love, and spread the word about the podcast Also, wish me and my fiance, congratulations. Just got engaged over the weekend to the lovely Tiffany Lamb. All right, guys, let's get into news and notes. We got a lot to talk about. So this is uh, hot off the press. Oscar De La Hoya, Golden Boy Promotions, just literally just announced this. Lucas Matisse will be defending his welterweight title against Manny Pacquiao. July 15th in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia it'll be July 14th USA time so uh, I don't have any details about this yet as far as purse goes or anything like that but I'd have to think if it's over there these guys are getting a boatload of money and for Matisse it's got to be career high money Uh, for Pacquiao you know obviously not career high money but a pretty substantial payday and he's pretty much just fighting for the money at this point anyway I don't know about uh, the network either, but I'm assuming this will be on ESPN because Golden Boy, they have a deal with ESPN. They do some cards on ESPN. Of course, their bigger fighters go to HBO, but Manny Pacquiao is with top rank and... Top rank has that ESPN deal, so I think that this would make perfect sense for ESPN. Pacquiao's last fight was there against Jeff Horn. That did massive ratings. Here he is going up against Matisse, a fighter that's way more well-known in boxing circles, a guy who's been on TV for years, fighting on American TV for years. So I think that this fight could do even better ratings. It just comes down to what time of the night it's going to be on here uh, in America. But July 14th, okay? At that time, you're not going up against the NBA or the NHL. Obviously, the NFL, that, se- that season hasn't started yet. You're just going up against Major League Baseball, and they're not really in the, the heart of that season where people are making playoff runs yet. So I think it's a great date for that fight, and I think it'll do good ratings every single year we seem to have one of these pacquiao uh fights that you know there's rumors of a fight in this country or that country it's always some exotic place a lot of times it's in the middle east that there's all these you know quote unquote investors putting up this money i thought that this was going to be a bunch of nonsense with this malaysia thing because again we hear this every year with pacquiao the fights never come to fruition but here it is it works out so you look he last fought in australia now he's going to fight in malaysia it's pretty interesting location for these two guys, um, considering where they're from and where they've fought in their careers, and now they're gonna be fighting in Malaysia. And look, at the time this fight's happening, the trajectory of both guys' careers, or actually it wouldn't be trajectory, the the downslide on their careers, but uh, Pacquiao much more faded, much more going through the motions here than Matisse. Matisse has a lot more in the tank I left, at least as far as being closer to his prime However, a past prime Manny Pacquiao is still better than a prime Lucas Matisse. But are we dealing with a shot Pacquiao, a guy who went life and death with Jeff Horn? I still felt that he beat Jeff Horn, but he went life and death with him. So we have a faded Lucas Matisse, a past prime Lucas Matisse, and a badly faded, possibly shot Manny Pacquiao. And Pacquiao hasn't fought since that Jeff Horn fight. Matisse has been more active. And Pacquiao, let's face it, the guy's fighting strictly for the money. They all fight for money, but he's been fighting strictly for the money for years now. This guy is a bunch of leeches, sucking him dry there in the Philippines, just going into his pockets and ripping money out, hand over fist every minute of his life. It's his own fault. It's his own doing. But Pacquiao is going to die broke. It wouldn't surprise me if the money from the Mayweather fight is already gone. Uh, the guy has tax issues here in America. That's why you probably won't see him fight here again. It's not going to end well, at least financially, for Pacquiao. And that's that's the only reason this guy's fighting right now. That and all the hangers on he has, they're going to go away as soon as the boxing career is over. So, um, you know, I, I still think that... You know, I'm not going to say Pacquiao, it's going to be a sad story the way it ends. But the guy's going to take more losses before he retires. He's going to get beat up a lot and take irrevocable damage to his health, and he's still probably going to die broke. There is a big, big chance Pacquiao could win this fight and win another title, but there's also a really, really good chance that Matisse could pull out a, a win here. And I think it'd be a minor upset win. Maybe you could say it's a minor upset win because I do think Pacquiao is the bigger, stronger guy, uh, at this stage of their life, at least the the harder puncher at this stage in their life. It's the last thing to go. But, uh, both guys could win this fight. I could see both guys winning. I got to think more about it, but we'll talk more about that one as, as I get more details. All right. All right. Another fight that, well, is probably all but dead, actually. I was going to say another fight that is scheduled, but we're talking about Canelo Golovkin, obviously. And look, I've done a bunch of videos talking about this fight. It's the biggest fight in boxing, and really it's one of the biggest stories of the year because of the drug testing situation with uh, Canelo testing hot and how Nevada is going to handle this. So you guys are probably keeping up with all this stuff too. You know that Golovkin and his team, Loeffler 360 Promotions, Triple G Promotions, they applied for a permit in Nevada to hold a fight there in Vegas at the MGM Grand. Not T-Mobile Arena, but at the MGM Grand which uh, the MGM owns T-Mobile Arena, they're partners, so it makes total sense why they could go there. It's a smaller venue. I think it's 15000 instead of the 20000 at T-Mobile. Discounted tickets a little bit, and everybody, you're not going to get rich, but you'll do okay, even against a lesser opponent. And I think that's probably what we're going to see. I mean, all things considered, I think it's very, very likely Canelo gets suspended for about six months retroactive to when he tested dirty and the fight with him and Golovkin gets pushed to September. He might get suspended longer. He might not get suspended. But my personal guess, my hunch, is a six-month suspension for Canelo. And that means, Tom Loffin told me last week, they want to fight May 5th. They will find somebody. Now, is it going to be Demetrius Andrade, uh, Sergei Dravianchenko, Billy Joe Saunders? No. I, I, with that kind of short notice, guys, it's not going to be an elite level opponent. I'm sorry, but it's not going to be. And you know what? You can't hold that against Golovkin. It's going to be somebody like Spike O'Sullivan. It's going to be that level of opponent who I think will make for a fun event, and they'll put together an undercard as best they can, and it's basically making the best out of a really shitty situation. Whether you believe Canelo Alvarez's contaminated meat story, or whether you think he's the dirtiest athlete in the history of sports, it's his fault that he tested dirty for clenbuterol. It's his fault. And the Nevada State Athletic Commission, you guys know about this by now as well, Bob Bennett filed an official complaint against Canelo. The bottom line is he's guilty of an anti-doping violation. Period. Per WADA rules, if you test with any amount of clenbuterol, there's no threshold or anything like that. There's no gimmies. It's an anti doping violation. And Nevada has what they call a strict liability. And without getting into a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo, basically it means that the athlete is responsible for what they put in their body. The Nevada Commission does not want to have to um, deal with any lawsuits if, let's say, a guy who tested dirty fights and beats and knocks out and brutally hurts or knocks out his opponent, that opponent could sue the commission. So they don't want to deal with any of that crap. That's why I think there will be a suspension here. Uh, People have cited other clenbuterall cases in different commissions in New York, in California, different commissions, different rules, also different situations. I know the Francisco Vargas situation specifically, his team provided receipts and uh, a paper trail as to how they purchased the contaminated meat tests were done all of it checked out so that's a completely different situation now if canelo presents that sort of evidence to clear his name here on this hearing april 18th that the commission's going to have maybe we will see a fight between them may 5th but i i just don't think so even if they provide that i think with this strict liability thing uh nevada is still going to suspend the guy for six months put him on one year probation where he's going to have to take true 24-7, 365 testing for an entire year and not pop again. And uh, they'll push the fight to September. So that's what I think is going to happen. And and you know what? A lot of you have asked for this. Let me give my stance on this situation. Let me give my official stance here because uh, a lot of you have just really conflated my words and twisted things. My official stance is this. I'm going to repeat myself a little bit. Whether you believe the contaminated meat excuse or not, Canelo Alvarez screwed up, period. We cannot prove for 100% certainty or disprove for 100% certainty how he got clembuterol in his system. We can't prove it. But he's liable. Anything above zero, any positive test with clembuterol, Anti doping violation, that's on him. He screwed up. Canelo Alvarez and his team are the reason we're not getting the biggest fight in boxing May 5th, whether you agree with his story or not. All right. I think there should be a six month suspension, push the fight to September, one year probation, as I just said. Some of you want Canelo out of boxing for life, and you think he's just as dirty as some other fighters. I think that's a bit harsh and a little bit too much and you can't do something like that you can't ban a guy for life or even for two years when you can't prove with 100 you know without a reasonable doubt that he did this stuff knowingly cheating you can't prove it we don't have that kind of evidence but doing what i just suggested would cost them 25 million dollars or more in either way you slice it his reputation is ruined forever His reputation has changed forever as a fighter and an athlete. And he's going to have a suspension from the Nevada State Athletic Commission on his record for the rest of his career. It's permanent. So the reputation's already been changed. He's going to get, this is going to cost him tens of millions of dollars. And you're going to have the guy on probation for a year testing him. True 24-7, 365 testing. That's the way to do it. I would also advise Mauricio Suleiman and the people at the WBC to shut up. Those of you who follow me on Twitter saw me go back and forth with him yesterday because Canelo Alvarez is rated number two by the WBC and he's been scheduled to fight for their WBC middleweight title now for months and yet he's not enrolled in the clean boxing program. Now, I put this out there on Twitter. Steve Kim retweeted it. He mentioned it on his podcast but he could have dropped my name because his co-host has some strange sexual obsession with me I don't know what's going on there so but that's who he was talking about by the way if you guys listen to his podcast the person who put this on blast on Twitter it was me and Mauricio Suleiman finally responded after hours and hours of back and forth and some other people jumping onto my tweet and adding on to it and he said oh well he volunteered to test for this fight so that's the same thing and I I challenged Mauricio Suleiman said no it's not volunteering for vada for one fight against golovkin last september and this fight now this spring is not the same as being enrolled in the clean boxing program and being subject to testing 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year even though i've talked about the clean boxing program and the issues with the budget and how many of the fighters don't even get tested in a calendar year still you're subject to testing it would be a much better look he will not give me a response. And in fact, uh, Suleiman put out a, a uh, press release today, that boxing scene picked up, where at the end of it, he says, Canelo Everest cannot be found guilty of doping, which is a false statement. Now, I, I guess it comes down to semantics and how you interpret that statement, but he is guilty of an anti-doping violation, as I, I've already said, and I've said in multiple times in different videos, yet... A lot of you out there still try to say, I'm defending the guy, it's, it's insane, but he is guilty of an anti-doping violation. So you could say he's guilty in that sense, but to use Suleiman's words, cannot be found guilty of doping. Well, yeah, we can't prove 100%, like I've said also in a bunch of videos, and this is why a bunch of you jumped down my throat, we can't prove 100% that the guy did it as a cheater, and he's been cycling down off and on, this and that, we can't prove it. We don't have a smoking gun, we don't have that kind of evidence. So in that sense, I get what Suleiman's saying, but if you read the whole thing, and I guess I could post a link to it in the description of this video for you guys to check out, it just, it reads like Mauricio Suleiman is Canelo Alvarez's promoter. It reads like a statement from a promoter, or an advisor, or a manager, or a best friend of a fighter. It's not what the head of the most powerful sanctioning organization in the world should be saying about a fighter, particularly when that fighter is the biggest star in the same country where your organization is headquartered. And you've been accused of favoritism for fighters from that country for eons. Not a good look for Mauricio Suleiman. I'm one of the few guys that put him on blast on Twitter. I'm one of the few guys that reams the BC consistently on this kind of stuff. And it's it's why I don't get invited to their uh, functions anymore. Guys, I used to get invited to WBC functions here in Los Angeles all the time. They're here in LA doing community work and stuff all the time. None of them contact me anymore. They absolutely hate me. But remember, I'm a shill for Canelo Alvarez Golden Boy Promotions in the WBC. All right, Um, why I think that Golovkin will probably end up fighting somebody like it might not be Spike O'Sullivan, but somebody on that level May 5th. Millions of dollars have already been pumped in to Las Vegas for the May 5th promotion. And it's not just the whales and some of the sponsorships and stuff like that. Remember, guys, you have a ton of sponsors putting up money for this. And Canelo comes with his sponsors, but so does Triple G. His sponsors are all in for May 5th as well. You also have international TV contracts, foreign TV money. Coming in, that's already scheduled for May fifth. You only have so many dates that venues are open and such. You already have a deal with the MGM execs because they own T-Mobile Arena. Everything is set up, you know, in terms of um, just the, what do I think? Uh, the template, the template is there for a May fifth event. So that's why I think Triple G Gennady Golovkin will fight May fifth if they can. They'll figure out some sort of contingency plan and fight on that date. It's not going to be an opponent worthy of pay-per-view. It's not going to be an opponent worthy of $10,000 ringside seats. So I don't think we're going to see that. It might go to, it could go to regular HBO. It could go to a reduced price pay-per-view. All that remains to be seen. But I do think they'll try to fight May 5th. Uh, Some still think that the Canelo-Golovkin rematch might happen May 5th. But, uh, and they say that because this April 18th hearing that Bob Bennett wants to have, where he's going to rule, you know, rule out a disciplinary action for Canelo. That's the same day of their monthly commission meeting anyway. To me, I just think, I don't read anything into that other than they're going to dole out the disciplinary action as part of their meeting. That's it. I mean, remember guys, remember these words, okay? Come April 18th, strict liability. No threshold for a clenbuterol in the system, accidental or not, in competition or not. That's enough right there for Nevada to suspend the guy. It's going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, but I think they're going to do the right thing here. We'll find out. And you know what? I'll give them credit when they do. I really, really will. Okay, let's move on, man. You guys, I'm beating a dead horse with this Canelo Golovkin thing. I want to talk about Scott Westgarth, the man who died after his fight in February the UK fighter who died, actually won his fight and then died afterwards. This man donated organs. He was an organ donor when he died. His organs saved seven lives. This man's organ donation saved seven lives. You want to talk about making an impact, made a bigger impact with, with his gift of donating his organs than he ever did in the ring. Let's give Scott Westgarth a round of applause, all right? I'm giving the slow clap. Sorry if that popped in your ears, on your speakers. But I, let's give this man a slow slow clap. I, I mean, seriously, save seven lives. Beautiful. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful story. Okay, let's talk about some other fights. Jeff Horn and Terrence Crawford is now scheduled for June 9th. This fight has been moved 452,000 times, it seems. It is now set for June 9th at the MGM Grand Las Vegas. So um, going head-to-head with the Leo Santa cruz Abner rematch here in L.A. Um, and I think it's going to outperform that for a multitude of reasons. Uh, first of all, you know, it, it is interesting. It's going to probably be the first fight on the ESPN app. So we're gonna see how that goes. Hopefully there's no glitches and everything goes good as far as the technology with that whole deal. But also look, Crawford has fought in Vegas before against Postal, Victor Postal. And I know that that pay-per-view sold like shit. It sold like two pay-per-views, but there was a large amount of his hometown fans that made the trip from Omaha to Vegas. And I think they're gonna do that again here. I think those Omaha fans, Top Rank and Terrence Crawford have built a brand there in Omaha. And those fans travel. And I do think that they're going to come out there and show some love. It will be interesting to see if any Aussies take the trip over to Vegas for that fight to support Jeff Horn. That will be interesting. If they do, it's going to make for a fun environment there, man. You're going to have a fun international crowd. And it is, it's going to be interesting to see how Crawford handles a big physical welterweight. Very, very limited, nowhere near A-level, but naturally bigger and rugged and rough. I still favor Crawford big time in that fight, but I am interested to see how he handles that physicality. Dillian White has been ordered by the IBF, and, well, an IBF eliminator has been ordered between Dillian White and Kubrat Pulev. Now remember, Pulev had the mandatory, was injured. Carlos Takem stopped, stepped in for him. So now there's an eliminator between Dillian White and Kubrat Pula being ordered. These guys have a month to uh, come to an agreement, some sort of deal, their promoters, or else the IBF will go to purse bid. Dillian White is the top-rated WBC fighter. But apparently the WBC, they upset Deontay Wilder when they forced him to fight Berman Stavurn late last year. That's a fight he did not want. That was kind of a favorite to Don King. So they're going to kind of pull back. This is what I'm hearing. They're going to kind of pull back. It won't mandate the fight between him and Dillian White for a while, which is bullshit. But hey, it's the WBC, baby. So I don't think Dillian White's going to get that shot at Deontay Wilder anytime soon. So does he dump his WBC silver title or does he keep it and go for this IBF eliminator? I don't know. The winner of this supposed IBF eliminator would get a crack at Anthony Joshua at some point. So we'll see what happened. Dillian White, for what it's worth, called out Alexander Povetkin Saturday after his emphatic KO victory over David Price. I think it's unlikely to happen because Povetkin is now supposed to be Anthony Joshua's mandatory challenger himself because he's rated number one, I believe, in two different sanctioning bodies. I think he's number one in the WBO and number one in the WBA. And Povetkin's going to want that big money fight against Joshua and call me crazy, but I, I think that's going to be an entertaining fight between the two of them. So um, I think, you know, for White, what do you do here? I, I'm not sure where he goes because I don't think he's going to get Wilder. I think Wilder is going to fight Dominic Brezail and because I think Brazil is rated number two in the BC. And they had that whole skirmish down at Birmingham, Alabama. I've been telling you guys since last year, that's the fight Al Heyman wants to set up is kind of filler material. Wilder is going to fight down... It could happen in Barclays, but it's also likely to happen in Birmingham, Alabama against Dominic Brazil. Hopefully that, hopefully that fight happens this summer so Wilder stays busy. But that kind of leaves Dillian White standing with his dick in his hand. So what do you do? Do you fight Kubrat Pulev and go for another eliminator? I don't know, man. If the, if, if the dollars make sense, do it. That's what I say. Stay active, do it. Mikey Garcia, has notified the IBF that he wants to stay at 140 pounds and defend his title. So, he will have to fight Ivan Branchik. And I think they have a month to negotiate that fight, or it goes to purse bid. I like Branchik. He could be Mikey Garcia's best opponent, all things considered, when you consider the size, the youth, all that, uh, since his return in 2016. You know, he might be in better shape right now than Adrian Broner and guys like that who are more proven at uh, you know a higher level than Bronchek is so far. But Ivan Bronchek is still a prospect and he'd be making a huge leap in opposition. His best opponent to date was stopping a very worn down Peter Petrov last month. So if that fight happens, I do think it's a competitive fight. I do think it's going to be a live fight. But I guess we'll get questions answered about brand but right now he's a prospect i don't even think he has 20 pro fights yet and he's only fought one or two guys with a pulse so he'd be making a huge leap in opposition but as i stated all things considered considering his size his strength his youth all of that coming into this fight might be the best overall challenge for mikey garcia since he's made his comeback in 2016 all right one last item here keith thurman Pulls out of another fight. He had a fight scheduled on May 19th. No opponent had been named, by the way. But he was you know, going to fight TBA. So, you know, that fight was, what, six weeks away or so? No opponent named or anything. He pulls out, claims he has a deep bruise on his left hand. Nothing's broken. Nothing's sprained. Nothing's even inflamed. He just has a bruise on his left hand. And that's enough to... Not fight the TBA slash C level opponent. He was going to go in there as a tune up fight and fight anyway. Keith Thurman last fought last March. So it's been over a year now outside the ring. He has had two fights in three years by this summer. By this, so in a couple more months, it will have been two fights in three years for this guy. It's time to start stripping. And no, I ain't talking about clothes. Start stripping this dude's titles. He just, he's becoming a non factor. He really, really is becoming a non factor. All right, guys, that's it with news and notes this week. Told you we had a lot to cover. Let's get into the fight review of what we saw in the ring last week around the world. Tuesday, March 27th, right here in Los Angeles, in Hollywood to be exact. It was the premiere edition of Hollywood Fight Nights from 360 Promotions and Tom Loeffler. And boy, did he put on a spread. We had, uh, in the media section, we had free food, unlimited, all night, they kept bringing it out. We had unlimited beer, Tecate beer, and unlimited tequila, Chivas tequila. So. Tom Loeffler really, really hooked it up. You guys have seen my interview with him. He was slightly tipsy when we did that interview. And he was trying to get everybody there drunk. Which, uh, you know, he wanted everyone to have a good time. And everyone did. It was a really, really fun event. The, the Avalon Theater, you know, pound for pound, if you compare that to, let's say, the Belasco Theater, the, the series that Golden Boy does, the Avalon Theater destroys Belasco. So I think that there's potential for this uh, Hollywood Fight Night series to be Everything that the uh, LA Fight Night series from uh, from Golden Boy is, but better. I mean, just better in every way. Better venue, better location, better everything. And we had some good fights at this event. So uh, in the main event, Ryan Martin wins by fourth round knockout, improves to 21-0, undefeated 140-pounder. And uh, they call him blue chip, he looked really good in this fight. I talked with Abel Sanchez after the fight, who he's training with now up there in Big Bear. Just talked about some of the things they've been working on in camp. Uh, Martin getting more comfortable at close range and at mid range, rolling with punches, moving with them, even eating them if he has to, to get inside and do some of his work. And you saw the improvements, you saw the confidence there. He looked more willing to engage and more willing to accept contact to get his work off. So you can see the Abel Sanchez and really the big bear effect already taking place. Also, Ukrainian welterweight Sergey Bohachuk wins a TKO3 to improve to 7 0. Welterweight Brian Ceballo and Jose Casillas both won their pro debuts. I did several interviews. You guys have seen the interviews with Loeffler, with Murat Gassiev. I did the interview with Abel Sanchez, as I mentioned, and I did an interview with Doug Fisher. The audio in the Abel Sanchez and Doug Fisher videos is really, really poor. They were, the DJ was really playing loud music toward the end of the night when I finally got to those guys. And uh, I don't know if we're gonna be able to salvage them. We're trying to clean up the audio. I'll try to do that and see if I can get those released this week, but they just might not be good enough with the audio, I'm sorry guys. Okay, September, March 31st, over in Cardiff, Wales at the O2 Arena. I'm sorry, that wasn't the O2 Arena. It was in Cardiff, Wales, oops. It was a match room card from Eddie Hearn. And it was a big heavyweight fight, man. Guys, we had the unification of three heavyweight titles. And it it was amazing to me the lack of buzz for this fight between Anthony Joshua and Joseph Parker. I don't understand uh, why some people were kind of shitting on this fight, man. WBA, IBF, WBO titles on the line. Two undefeated guys. Uh, I, I thought that this was a great, great matchup. The fight itself did not produce fireworks, but all in all, this was people forget, man. I think this is, uh, I think it was Joshua's twenty first or twenty first or twenty second pro fight. He needs rounds, and so does Joseph Parker. Joseph Parker has gone rounds; he's gone more rounds than AJ. So you know, he looked more comfortable going late into a fight at times than than Joshua looked because he's just not used to doing it. But uh, I, I thought this this was a smart learning workmanlike performance from aj i thought he won eight rounds he controlled the fight with his jab and you know he tried to make some adjustments i I think um it was enough to score clearly eight rounds for aj i think i think that uh parker fought a lot better than a lot of you gave, gave him credit for coming in but You guys know, I said, this fight was going to go the distance. And Parker was going to do way better than you guys thought. And this was going to be a very competitive fight. And it was. This was essentially Joseph Parker taking away AJ's straight right hand, his right uppercut, and his left hook. Anthony Joshua only threw 383 punches in this fight. What he did in this fight, once he saw the right hand wasn't going to get it done, the hook, the uppercut... He tried them a few times. They weren't going to work. He even tried resorting to dirty tactics, holding and hitting. He'd reach around with his left hand and pull uh, Parker's head down and try to hit him with the right uppercut. That's a move that he's pulled on in several fights recently that's produced great results for him. But uh, Parker saw that. They obviously prepared for it because he had his right hand up ready to block that uppercut. That's technically should be illegal. But... Uh, you know, AJ only threw 383 punches. Once he saw his power shots weren't going to work, he settled with the jab, and he controlled the range. He controlled the distance with his jab. So yes, give Parker credit for neutralizing AJ's power, but give AJ credit for making adjustments and controlling the distance with his jab and winning the fight that way. Neither guy did a lot. But AJ did just a little bit more. For those of you who are saying this was a draw or something, you're insane. There wasn't enough from Parker to clearly win rounds like that. Uh, I just didn't see that. If you look at the real estate, who was pushing the fight forward for the most part, particularly in the second half of the fight, once AJ made some adjustments, it was Joshua. So he clearly won the fight. That being said, the scorecards were a little bit too wide. I I thought Parker won three or four rounds. I think one judge had him winning one round. I think that's a, that's a bit too wide. But still, the right guy wins. Referee Giuseppe Corderone really did a horrible job. I have no idea what he was doing refing that fight. Now, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Eddie Hearn wanted to get him in there to ref the fight a certain way so that Parker couldn't get his work off on the inside because anytime the fighters got close, he interrupted them. Corderone did. Um, I, I don't know. I will say this. This wasn't the first time there was questionable officiating in the Anthony Joshua fight. You guys know I've gone on record. I, I think Carlos Takem should have went the distance with Joshua. That fight should not have been stopped. I thought that was a bullshit stoppage. I thought that the Klitschko stoppage was a bit premature. Watch the replay of the, just before the stoppage, I think it was in the 11th round, Anthony Joshua, Vladimir Klitschko. Klitschko literally slips about 10 punches and then one glancing blow kind of lands and the ref calls the fight. Now he wasn't throwing back, but he was making AJ miss a lot. That's called defending yourself. There was no reason that fight should have been stopped when it was stopped, especially considering what we saw in the fifth and sixth round. So this isn't the first time we've seen favorable officiating or judging in AJ's favor. Guess what, guys? He's the A-side. He's the star over there in that part of the world. He's the money man, and you're fighting in his backyard. I don't love it. I don't think that's the way it should be, but that's the way it is in sports. It's like that in every damn sport, not just boxing. So if you're going over there to fight him, you got to know beforehand what you're up against. You can't be naive. See Canelo Golovkin last September for an example of what I'm talking about. Can we give AJ some credit though? Last three fights were against Vladimir Klitschko. He had the last minute replacement with Carlos Takam as a serviceable borderline top 10 heavyweight. And yeah, he didn't look amazing in that fight, but he clearly dominated. He won it just about every round. And now he just beat Parker. The best version of Parker we've seen in a couple years. Totally healthy, in shape, weighed less than he's weighed in several years. Can we give the guys some damn credit? He's done all this in what, 21, 22 fights. He's been a pro for, I don't know, a handful of years. He's done a lot. After the fight, AJ says he wants to stay in the UK. He doesn't care about coming over here to conquer America. And there was a bunch of American fight fans and journalists who got butthurt over that. be being so damn ethnocentric. be being so damn insecure, my fellow Americans. This is a global sport. And guess what? AJ is one of the biggest stars in the world. You got Canelo Alvarez. You got Anthony Joshua. Those are the two. And now Canelo Alvarez's career is tainted. Two, three years from now, he's probably not going to be the top guy anymore. He's not going to be the money man. You know who likely will be? Anthony Joshua. So why the hell would you want to come over to America when you've got nothing to prove? What I love about his comment when he was talking about I'll stay right here in the UK, is he talked about for years, UK fighters having to go to America and UK fans having to spend a ton of money going to Vegas and pay for bloated hotel room uh, cost, uh, the, the the flight tickets, the tickets to the fight, which are outrageously priced there. And you know what? Cool. That's the right attitude. Do it over there where, yeah, are the tickets expensive when he fights in London and Cardiff? Yes, they're expensive. Are they Las Vegas expensive? No, not anywhere near it. And that's why I still say Canelo's the top draw in the sport because the money he makes in Vegas dwarfs what AJ makes. However, that is changing. If he can continue to pack 70, 80, 90,000 people into fights against guys like Carlos Tacam. And even Joseph Parker, who wasn't a big name, that's damn impressive. That's really damn impressive. And that's going to change the marketplace in this sport even more. And no, I'm not just saying that because I contribute to a British fight mag. It's just the reality of the situation. People need to get with the damn times. Also, can we give Joseph Parker some damn credit? Everyone's talking about how shitty AJ looked. And look, I get it. He didn't look great. He looked a little lethargic. He looked a little confused at times to me. He looked a little discouraged at times to me. But he also looked like a guy who won eight rounds against an undefeated titleist. That's still pretty damn impressive. Yes, he's a work in progress. But Joseph Parker did that to AJ. He confused him enough. He neutralized him enough. He showed some, some holes in AJ's game that other fighters who maybe have similar athletic qualities to Parker, but are taller and rangier, hint, hint, guess who I'm talking about, could use later on. There are flaws in Joshua's game. Vladimir Klitschko exposed some of them. He's wide open for straight right hands sometimes. But you can only do so much with straight right hands. If you can get inside, if you can move, if you could punch with angles, if you can use your feet, those are things that Joseph Parker did. You could do a whole lot more. Deontay Wilder might just have the right mix of what Vladimir Klitschko brought to the table and Joseph Parker brought to the table to really get things done against Anthony Joshua. That's why when that fight finally happens next spring, like I've been telling you all along, it's when it's going to happen. I can't wait for it. But Joseph Parker deserves major credit. To me, his heavyweight stock rose in this loss. Yes, he didn't do enough. He was on the back foot too much. Even though he threw more punches than AJ, he didn't throw punches with, with big intentions, but he still did a good job. He still did a quality job against a guy who was much, much bigger, had a friendly ref, a friendly commission, tens of thousands of people screaming for him. All things considered, let's not forget that Parker's basically a prospect with a title as well, and he's a work in progress. He deserves credit. I'm going to go on record and say this right now. I've already said it on Twitter. Joseph Parker beats Luis Ortiz. He beats him if they fight right now. And he beats him pretty decisively. I'm not saying he knocks him out. It would go the distance. But he would decisively beat, I'm talking eight rounds to four, nine rounds to three, Luis Ortiz. Yes, I'm going on record and saying that. So this win, and this isn't even Anthony Joshua's best win, but this win over Joseph Parker still trumps Deontay Wilder's best win. Maybe not in terms of style points, but in terms of quality of opposition. Do not forget, people, Luis Ortiz was in such bad physical condition for that fight with Wilder that the New York Commission did not even clear him to fight officially until the morning of the fight. They flew in a replacement fighter Friday night after the weigh-in. That's how shitty the health of Luis Ortiz is. Okay, So put all that into perspective. And still, his best win as a pro is Bryant Jennings coming off a loss. So let's all pump the brakes on this hate against AJ. But those of you anointing AJ as you know, uh, the irrefutable god of boxing, and he can do no wrong, you need to pump the brakes too. He's still a work in progress. And let me tell you something, him and Deontay Wilder fight head-to-head, I don't know who to pick right now. I really don't know who to pick in that fight. I can't wait for it, though. Anyway, other heavyweight action on that card. Alexander Polvetkin decapitates David Price in the fifth round. Uh, Polvetkin was technically knocked down in the third round. He caught a left hook that visibly wobbled him, and he staggered into the ropes. Anytime the ropes hold you up, that's a knockdown. So he was knocked down by Price in the third, which I don't think a lot of people expected. Price was dropped in the third and then decapitated in the fifth round. Um, Vicious KO. David Price needs to retire. The British authorities need to pull his boxing license. It's not just that the guy gets knocked out. It's how he gets knocked out. Watch the replay of the knockout. I'm sure you guys have already seen it a thousand times. There's gifs all over social media. At the first punch, Povetkin lands, which I think was a right hand. You just see Price freeze up and kind of go limp. His arms fall down. He kind of turns sideways to his right, which ironically made it easier for Povetkin to land his left hook. That killed him. But his face freezes up. His eyes freeze up. His whole body freezes up. His arms drop and his chin goes up in the air. And he's completely defenseless. And Povetkin did the right thing. You know, I mean, you're supposed to protect yourself at all times. The ref didn't jump in. So he followed up with a left hook. And it was a vicious knockout. The man could not defend himself off a right hand that it was a good shot that he hit him with, but it wasn't a great shot. It wasn't that great. Most top 10 heavyweights take that right hand that stunned and and basically queered up David Price before he shot that left hook. So uh, it's the way the guy's getting KO'd. He's, He's a sitting duck for these money shots, for these... Uh, clean up KOs, and they need to get the guy out of boxing. That's just it. So for Povetkin, his last fight before this was, I think, a WBA title eliminator. He's rated number one in two organizations. He should get a crack at Anthony Joshua soon. It'll be interesting to see how all that develops. And it's just more of why I say the fight between Joshua and Wilder isn't happening until next year. There's unfinished business for both. And much like the Canelo-Golovkin fight that didn't happen until about a year after, a year and a half after uh, both sides really started negotiating. Sometimes that extra development time makes the eventual fight better. And I think that Wilder, even if he fights Brazil and maybe it's Dillian White after Brazil, maybe it's somebody else, But for Joshua, if later this year he fights Alexander Povetkin, that's a couple more wins. The division gets a little more cleaned up should should they both win those fights. And when they finally do fight, it really is the top two dogs fighting each other, right? So, So that's the way it's supposed to work, guys. And would I like to see them fight next week? Yes, of course. I want to see them fight now. But I know the business of boxing, and you do too. Calm down, quit buying into what one guy says and what the other guy says. It's all posturing, it's all bullshit. It's all basically playing you guys to get you talking and promoting the fight for them. The fight will happen next spring, okay? All right. Oh, and Povetkin. A lot of people are making a lot about this knockout. Let's put this into perspective. David Price was the perfect opponent for Povetkin. David Price not only hurt Povetkin and technically knocked him down and and stunned him, wobbled him, and actually uh, stopped him in his tracks a couple times in those early rounds, but he went five rounds with Povetkin. That's three more rounds than Tepper took him. That's three more rounds than Thompson, Tony Thompson took him in their first fight. Okay, so let's put things in perspective. Highlight real knockout for Povetkin. It means little to... Not much, okay? Also on this card, Ryan Burnett scores a unanimous decision over Jan-Frez Parejo. He's now 19-0, defends his WBA uh, super bantamweight title. In two 2016 Olympians, Josh Kelly scores a unanimous decision over Carlos Molina. I think this is a good win for him really good-looking prospect josh kelly one of the better-looking uk prospects right now improves to 6-0 and wins a vacant minor title there in the welterweight division and joe Cardina scores a tko3 win over hakim ben ali he's now 7-0 wins a vacant minor lightweight title and anthony million dollar crawler stays busy with a 10-round decision victory now here in the united states believe it or not there was a golden boy boxing card on espn 2 at the Marina Bay Sportsplex in Quincy, Massachusetts. In the main event, or maybe it was the co-main. I got to be honest, guys. I didn't watch the fight. There I go being a golden boy shill again. Didn't even watch this card. Junior middleweight Southpaw Max, uh, Mark DeLuca, who is from the Quincy area. So this was a hometown fight for him. Scores a TKO 7 win. He's now 21-0. And, and Irish middleweight Jason Quigley scores a TKO 6 win. He's now 14-0. He was coming off an injury that he suffered last March against Glenn Tapia. So that was it for uh, last week, guys. Let's get into the preview of what's coming up this week. Friday, April 6th at the Belasco Theater in downtown LA. It's another LA Fight Club from Golden Boy Promotions. This will be on Estrella TV, which is a Spanish channel here in the states and it will be streamed live for free on ring tv miami-based kazakh lightweight ayadar sharibayev headlines the card in a 10 rounder saturday april 7th at the hard rock hotel and casino in las vegas it is pbc on showtime and uh, we got a few fights here on the undercard julian j rock williams is fighting and also sergio mora is fighting and in the co-main, I believe, Caleb Truex defending his IBF super middleweight title against James DeGale This is a rematch of their fight back in December where Truex won an upset to take that title off of Gale. Here's what I wonder. You, you know, at first, look on paper, Gale is supposed to be favored in this fight, right? He's supposed to be favored in this fight because he is the more proven quote unquote, top level fighter. But, I have some questions. Has DeGale got back in the condition he was in a couple years ago? Was the first fight an anomaly? Did he take Truax lightly? Did he have a bad camp? For Caleb Truax, has he stayed sharp since this upset win? Or has he been living the high life, winning this title he never thought he'd win, and he's been partying a little too much or living it up, eating a little too much, too much ice cream, too much beer? Or has he stayed sharp in the gym knowing that this rematch was going to happen and he was going to have to pull out all the stops to get another W? I don't know, man. But I'll say this much. I've always felt James DeGale was a little overrated. I, I just, I never thought that this guy was an elite level fighter. To me, he seemed like a guy who had the look. He's got skills. He does some things well that look really pretty, but... I don't see an elite pound for pound level talent in this guy. I see holes in his game that can be exploited by a fighter with the right style. And Caleb Truax just so happens to be an experienced guy who's been in with some very good fighters. He's come up short against them, but the experience he gained came in, you know, right night, best performance of his career, gets that win. Now he's rematching him here in Las Vegas. He's the American fighter. I got to go with Truex again, man. I got to go with Truex again by close decision. If I'm James DeGale, I'm coming into this fight in the best shape of my life, and I'm going for a knockout. He's got to put Truex on his butt or get a knockout, I think, to win this fight. Maybe I'm totally off. Let me know what you guys think. But I just... I see the Gale. Maybe it was that tough, grueling fight with Badu Jack that just changed him. Maybe he's just not the same guy. Again, not that I ever thought he was elite, but he was a top-rated fighter in that division. He was a top 10 fighter. Is he still? Is he still a top 10 super middleweight? I don't know. We're gonna find out. In the main event, here is Landi Lara putting his WBA, WBO oh, yeah, WBA. Sorry about that. WBA junior middleweight title up against Jarrett Hurd in his IBF junior middleweight title. These guys are unifying titles. Finally, we get some real unification in a junior middleweight division that Al Heyman and the PBC have owned for years, but none of these titles have been consolidated. Now we're getting it. This is a classic old guy versus young guy matchup. Uh, Lara's 34. He's seven years older than Hurd. He's only 27 uh, Lara is 25-2-2 two and two with 14 knockouts. Hurd is 21-0 with 15 knockouts. Lara has boxed 187 pro rounds. He went pro in 2008. So this guy's been a pro for 10 years. Hurd has only fought 98 pro rounds. He went pro in 2012. Six foot one, 76 inch reach, going up against five foot nine, 74 inch reach. Lara has long arms for his height and he is a southpaw. So uh, I do think that that's gonna cause stylistic issues for Heard. Heard, his last fight was against Austin Trout, who's also a southpaw, also five foot nine. So I think that that was great preparation for Iwaslandi Lara. That was last October, and I really think that helped him prepare for what he's gonna see in this fight. But Lara does a few things uh, better than Trout. And just with his movement, his feet have slowed. The angles have widened a little bit, right? He's a little more open, a little more flat-footed now than he used to be several years ago. But he is going to pose big stylistic problems for Hurd. Here's the thing, though. Who has Lara fought that resembles anything like he's going to face against Jarrett Hurd? The only similar opponents I could think of, like in terms of pressure style, were Alfredo Angulo back in 2013, who dropped Lara. I was ringside for that fight, that was here in LA, and uh, Angulo almost had him out of there at one point. So you could compare in terms of pressure Angulo to Hurd, but in terms of body size, body shape and everything, Paul Williams, same height. I think Paul Williams is six foot one. Uh, Totally different style, but in terms of height and reach and everything, Fought him back in 2011 and lost a controversial decision. We all know Lara beat Paul Williams. But uh, I guess if you put those two guys together, you get Jared Hurd in a way. But he hasn't really fought anybody just like Hurd. So here's what I think is going to happen. I think we're going to have Lara boxing circles around Hurd early. And if I'm Hurd, I'm just coming forward, work behind my jab, and punch at arms, punch at shoulders, punch at the chest. Punch at the side of the head, punch downward toward the top of the head because Lara's going to duck down and, and spin and try to uh, get under those shots. And if you clip them and wing them with little glancing blows here and there, it's eventually going to take its toll. And I just think late in this fight, Hurd will come on and the question will be, how big of a lead can Lara build up early? Can Lara win the first six, seven, eight rounds clearly to where he deserves a decision? I don't think so. I think he's going to win the first three, four, five rounds, and then Hurd's going to start to make the middle rounds close and debatable, and then Hurd will win the late rounds. It's those close, debatable rounds, depending on which style you prefer, that's going to be how you score the fight. So I think Hurd's going to get a decision here. He's going to collect these titles. And for Lara, I don't really know where he goes from here. It's interesting. You know, I just talked about his record. He's 2 and two. So this will be his 30th pro fight. The guy's been a pro for 10 years. I just feel like he should have more fights than that. You know, it just feels like he's been around forever. And uh, you'd think the guy would have 35, 38 pro fights or something, but he doesn't. Uh, PBC, man, not the most active fighters in the world. But yeah, that's how I see it, guys. Herd wins a decision and he takes... uh, Lara's title to unify titles and become the guy at Junior Middleweight. Let me know what you guys think. Like, comment, share, subscribe. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly magazine and boxingmonthly.com, and I'll see you at the fights.